Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So yeah, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at the parable of the rich fool today, and as, as we look at Jesus, uh, how Jesus tells us to trust God. So we believe that God speaks to us through the words in the Bible, and they're just as alive and relevant for us today as it was to the people who were around at the time that it was written. So let's have open ears and hearts to what he might want to say to each of us today. So what does trusting God mean to you? What does it bring to mind? Is it times that you've had to trust God to provide for you in the past? Is it trusting God that he has a plan in suffering? Is it trusting God to come through on a promise? Maybe you don't 100% trust God, or maybe your trust is at 80% or maybe less, or maybe you don't think you trust him at all, if you're honest. Maybe you trust him with some things, but struggle to trust him for others. So let's see how Jesus tells us to trust God in Luke's gospel. And we're going to look at four main themes today. Trusting God with justice, trusting God that he is sufficient, trusting God with our contentment, and trusting God practically. So if you like having, it, having your Bible out on your phone or in, in paper form, we're in Luke chapter 12, but the words will be on the screen. And a large crowd has gathered around Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. So let's see how we can trust God with justice. This passage starts with a man from this massive crowd that has gathered around Jesus, asking Jesus to weigh in on an inheritance dispute. It appears as though his father has died without a will, and the older brother has claimed the inheritance as per the customs of the time. The man has concluded that this is not fair and can only claim some of the land if his brother agrees to it. And this is not a petty sibling dispute. The brother's livelihood would be in the balance. His ability to care for his family was in his brother's hands and not his own. This would be like our oldest sibling receiving all of the money and property from our parents and any other siblings or family members receiving nothing. That feels unfair, right? But what we see here is a self-created justice that Jesus doesn't like. Instead of asking Jesus for advice on how to resolve the issue in an honouring way, the brother has already decided that justice for him is the division of the inheritance, contrary to custom, and his brother being told what to do. The man tells Jesus to tell his brother to split the inheritance, to use his authority as rabbi to sort his problem for him. The man is avoiding a crucial conversation with his brother, or he's tried already, but it hasn't gone well. So he's looking for Jesus to step in. Either way, Jesus responds harshly to the question, but what is Jesus reacting to? Firstly, self-created justice. The brother had become convinced that his way, splitting the inheritance, was the only just and right thing. And therefore, his means of getting it must be just too. He wants Jesus to enforce his view so he can be justified in his actions. I can think of so many times when I've made a decision about something and then prayed that it would go well, that God would bless it, that he would provide for it. But I haven't spent the time praying before I made the decision. So it might not be the best one. 
God has often still blessed those decisions and provided for me in them, but they may have not been the best for me or bring the best fruit. I have, however unconsciously, trusted myself over God. And we read in the book of Numbers that God asked Moses to speak to a rock and it would pour out water for the community. But Moses struck the rock with his staff twice instead, doing something that God had told him to do before, that had worked before, instead of what God asked him to do this time. Water still came out of that rock, but Moses' disobedience, striking the rock instead of trusting God's word and speaking to it, meant that Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. That was the consequence. He didn't get God's best. God still blessed Moses and provided for his people, but Moses missed out on God's best for him because he did not take the time to listen to God and consider his actions. When have we decided on something ourselves and then prayed that Jesus will back it up, that he will help us achieve this in the ways that we think will help rather than consulting him from the start? This man came to Jesus with an agenda for approval rather than being open to taking Jesus' point of view on the issue. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. And Jesus is also reacting to division. Jesus came to reconcile and not divide. He wants to bring people together, not split them up. If Jesus had given a straight yes or no answer, it was going to create more division in that family. Jesus' response doesn't mean that he does not care about the justice of the situation, Rather, Jesus' sense of justice is much more perfect than ours. He sees the whole picture and can be much more just than we could ever be. Thankfully, Jesus is the ultimate authority on social justice issues. Jesus was concerned to heal relationships between people, and out of that healing, they could deal with the issues that divided them from a better perspective. And this is what restorative justice is all about. So it's something that was a key part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after apartheid. Victims and offenders would come together and talk, each finding healing in taking responsibility for their actions, confession and forgiveness. They could then move forward in a much more positive way, whatever that looked like for them. Jesus seeks to bring a kind of justice that heals rather than tears apart. God wants a unified humanity where people look out for each other. And this involves trusting him for true justice rather than the flawed justice that we bring. So Jesus reacts to the man's self-created justice, the division that is occurring, and the man's motivation. Jesus sees the motivation behind the man's question and calls out greed. If the brother had divided the inheritance, the man's greed would have been rewarded. Jesus responds instead with a parable that gets the man to question his motivations. It's the motivation here that matters to Jesus, not the outcome of the debate. So Jesus tells a parable, a story that teaches us something. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no space to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. 
So we need to trust God that he is sufficient. This rich man has an abundant harvest with more than he had planned for or expected. He's a practical man, so immediately thinks of where he could store this surplus grain so that none of it will be lost. He's clearly wealthy enough to have enough workers to harvest the bumper crop and to be able to afford to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. But notice how he talks. What shall I do? This is what I'll do. I'll say to myself, the rich man does not take anyone else into account. He believes that his wealth is his and his alone, and that therefore he should be the one to enjoy it. He feels entitled to his wealth and hopes for an easy life of abundance. Eating, drinking, and being merry are signs of God's blessing. So surely he has a right to enjoy that blessing. Are there any things that we feel entitled to or that we've earned? Comforts that we feel we have a right to because of things we've done or accomplished? Have we got people around us to challenge us? God does not hold back in his response to the man. You fool, you'll die tonight and then he'll get your hoard of food and possessions. God points out the selfishness of this plan. What's the point if he can't guarantee he's going to be around to enjoy it? And there's no guarantee that he would enjoy it anyway, actually. The man already appears to have isolated himself and has become completely self-reliant, finding his security and happiness in how much he has in his barns, trusting in his self-sufficiency. God also points out that there is no one around him to benefit. He's literally talking to himself about what to do with the abundant crop. So appears to have no one that he trusts to consult on what to do with his abundance. It doesn't even seem to occur to him that he could share his crop or give any away. And he has no one around him to, to challenge him. In a commentary on this parable, St. Augustine said, he did not realise that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Have we considered alternative storerooms? What are we holding on to that others could be benefiting from? Are we building bigger barns ourselves? The man seems to believe that he is the ultimate owner of the wealth, rather than God, and therefore should keep it as his. But God reminds him that he, God, is the ultimate source of his wealth, and more importantly, he's the ultimate source of his life, and can give or take from these at any time. Just like the man would expect his workers to take orders from him as to how to care for his crops because he is the owner, so God wants to help us steward our possessions as he is the ultimate owner and we're just looking after them. Only God can be trusted with our lives and our possessions because they're his anyway. So are there things in our lives that we see as ours and not God's? Have you ever thought about what you're leaving behind when you die? So if this parable is teaching us not to pursue acquiring possessions, despite what the world says, how can we pursue contentment with what we have? What is God calling us to? Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our Western society is built on anxiety as we set higher and higher expectations on ourselves and others and worry about whether we will achieve them. We always want and expect more in all areas of life. Most of the people in the crowd that Jesus was addressing only just had enough to live on day to day, and there was always the possibility that one disaster, sickness or injury could leave them with nothing. 
And it's actually these people that Jesus is talking to. The man in the parable is coveting. He believes that the more he has, the happier he will be, as he will feel more secure. Despite the different circumstances, it's that always wanting more mindset that we're familiar with today. It can be very easy for us to take for granted our access to food and drink, a soft bed, and even clothes to choose from. We still pursue a nicer lifestyle and struggle to give even a small percentage of our money of our income away, a lot of us. When we have more than enough, it can be so easy to just increase our spending, buying nicer houses, cars, holidays, and other luxuries that we then become used to. When we do this, though, it's easy for there to be nothing left to give away or share. We can choose to be rich because we have a lot of money or be rich because we don't need a lot of money and are content with what we have. Contentment doesn't mean depriving ourselves of ever spending money or never going on holiday to that place you've always wanted to go. It is embracing relative simplicity and choosing thankfulness, acknowledging that God has given us so much already. Out of this place of thankfulness comes contentment. I found out recently that thankfulness and anxiety originate in the same area of our brains. Research has shown that consciously practicing gratitude can reduce feelings of stress and anxiety. In fact, studies in the US have found that a single act of thoughtful gratitude produces an immediate 10% increase in happiness and a 35% reduction in depressive symptoms. So that sounds worth taking the time for, especially when it comes with contentment. So God used manna as a lesson in contentment for the Israelites in the wilderness. He only provided enough manna, so like a bread-like substance, each day for that day. If they tried to store away extra for the future, it smelt and got maggots on it. The strong were to care for the weak and the foreigner. God showed them that his provision is enough. He alone was their provider. And more stuff would not bring the fulfillment that they desired they could trust him to provide. Paul says in 1 Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Paul, who wrote this, is a great example of someone who knew how to be joyful in both the good times, the plenty, and the bad, when he had nothing. This contentment is a kind of contentment that is not based on the state of the world, but on the state of his heart and our hearts. This means that contentment can be found in all circumstances. Then the response to the world comes out of that, rather than reacting to how life is going on around us. Paul also said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. True contentment can be found in God alone, who gives us strength. So Philippians 4, verse 13, that well-known memory verse, is actually written in the context of contentment. I can do all this through him who gives me strength, being able to have joy in every circumstance. 
Paul knew that contentment could be found in Christ alone. And this was the best place to respond to the trials of life and the world from. As with anything of the heart, we can become more content through prayer. Praying that God and God alone would be enough for us. That we would not seek comfort, validation or meaning in having more or better possessions, but in God alone. That we would not constantly desire more, but be thankful and content with what we already have. And those desires we can bring to God and ask him to change our hearts so that we can have true contentment. And it's also a discipline in making choices in what we prioritise and how we spend our money. If our sense of identity, value and trust is in God, we can respond with joy, no matter how much we have in our barns. We know that one day there will be no more struggle or hunger or war or without when Jesus comes back. And so our current circumstances are very temporary when we put them in the context of eternity. We can turn our current circumstances into a chance to let others see the trustworthy goodness of God in all circumstances. So how can we trust God practically? Jesus finishes his, his parable by encouraging us to be rich towards God. But what does that mean? Rich towards God means value in God above all else. Having more riches in God than in anyone else. It means using our earthly riches in a way that shows how much we trust and value God. So what might this look like for you? So let's look at how we can trust more with our stuff. We can pursue relationship with him. We can pray to be free of always desiring more stuff. We can choose to trust in God's promises and budget well. So pursuing relationship with him. This means spending time with God every day, reading our Bibles and praying. The more time we spend with someone, the more we're likely to trust them, right? The more we know about them, the more that we understand their feelings and the reasons behind their decisions. Obviously, there are times when people let us down, and that breaks trust. But if it's the right thing to do, how do we build trust back up? By spending time with them, by being intentional with hanging out and making time for each other. It's the same with God. The more time we put aside to spend with him, the more we pray and read our Bibles, the better we know his character and the more, the more we are likely to trust him. And in this case, trust him with our stuff. And he's trustworthy. And we can pray to be free of desiring more stuff. We can ask that God would show us how he is so much better than our stuff. Our money and possessions run out and break. And no matter how exciting your new toy is, it can never bring as much joy as Jesus can. If we're constantly chasing the dopamine or serotonin highs that can be found in buying new things or scrolling through Instagram, we'll never be satisfied. We'll always be looking for more of them, and it's addictive. So let's pray that we will feel satisfied with what we have. In Psalm 90, it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let's pray to find eternal joy in God before anyone or anything else, so that we can be free from coveting or seeking thrills in more, bigger and better stuff that won't last. And we can choose to trust in God's promises too. Paul says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes trust just comes from making a choice. Choosing to feel differently. Choosing to prioritise something or someone. 
choosing to believe what someone says. God promises to meet our needs, to care for us, and that he is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. There becomes a point where we just need to choose to trust him. He is the only one who we can trust completely. He always does what is best for us, even when we can't see it. There is so much freedom to be found in trusting God with all of our people and stuff. They're his responsibility, not ours. And when that's hard, we pray. And another practical way that we can intentionally trust God more is our budgeting. When you budget, where do you start? Do you start with your spending, your saving, or your giving? If we want to prioritize being rich towards God before all of our stuff, then being intentional with our money as soon as it comes in can be a great way of doing that. Maybe schedule your giving to come out of your bank account the day after you get paid. Then the amount is not reduced by the amount you spend that month, and you've already prioritized your giving over your spending. A decision could also be made about how much is enough and sticking to it. This means our lifestyle doesn't slip into one that's used to luxuries and has less, less left for giving. How much do you keep in savings and how much do you spend on holidays relative to your income, for example? All of these decisions demonstrate our trust in God to provide for us and to strengthen our relationship with him when we choose to trust him more. Okay, to conclude, we're... Uh, called, Jesus calls us to trust God with justice. Jesus is the ultimate judge, seeking to bring healing and unity. Let's lean on him for wisdom. Where do we need his justice? Trust God that he is sufficient. God has, provide, has promised to provide for us. Are we spending our time building bigger barns for later or doing the things that really matter to us now? Trust God with our contentment. We have a loving, faithful Father God who cares for us and loves to bless us. When we believe this, contentment is possible in all circumstances. Where can we pursue contentment in our lives? And trust God practically. We were not made for things. We were made for God. The cost of following Jesus can be or feel like a high one. But if we are living in the perspective of the eternity to come, then it's worth our entire lives, not just our things. And our God promises to provide for us, his children, and so we must trust him. What do you need to trust God with today? Is it your money? Is it your family? Is it your well-being? Is it a relationship? Or maybe you're seeking justice in an area of your life. Whatever it is, Father God cares about it. So we're going to spend some time responding now. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.